go forth and produce much fruit. In spite of the messenger, Father, in spite of the distractions we might have around us, I pray your word would go forth in power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Take your Bible. Turn to John chapter 12. John, John Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 12, and we're going to talk today, and we sang a couple of songs related to this, um, kind of put Jason on the spot with that first song, a new song for us, and it spoke about this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and we know that um, we're only in chapter 12, <laughs> we still got many chapters to go. But in the, in the timeline of Jesus' life, we're just a few days away. It's Palm Sunday. We're a week away from all the many things that are going to happen, including his arrest and his, his suffering and his going to the cross. And so we are, I hope you're in that mindset of where we are in the text, that um, Jesus is coming into the city here for the final time before his crucifixion. Uh, this is one of those interesting things as well that is actually in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us info on this account. And so we can take those, put them together, and really have a good understanding of what happened on this very momentous occasion. So I want to read the text to you, and then I want to just kind of give some background, which I think is very interesting. And then at the end, I have four points to give you uh, related to things that Christ says here in the text. So first, let's read it. We'll read from 12 through 26. So if you're in John 12, say word. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was him, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the, his grave, and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. 
If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Let's finish out the words of Christ in the next two verses. And it says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. So we come to this triumphal entry and uh, just some great information here. I think some great interesting facts about this, uh, this whole celebration and what's going on here. And it kind of reminds me of Christmas time, right? When it's Christmas time, you will see all kind of Christmas movies on TV. You'll hear even the secular radio stations will play Christmas songs, right? There's like a spirit in the air, isn't there? For most people during Christmas, there's a spirit in the air. And there's also like some sense of uh, receptiveness to Christ during that time of year for many people. Even non-Christians will listen to certain Christmas songs about Christ or watch certain Christmas movies about Christ because it's that time of year. And so we come to this point of John 12, and it's one of those Jewish feasts, one of those Jewish festivals, and I can just sense, you can just think there is this feeling in the air, excitement in the air of a time of worship for the people. And so you see there a few thoughts I have for you from verse 12. A few things that stand out to me, and I underlined it, is first of all, there's a lot of people there. And why is there so many people there? Well, it's because there's a feast. Now, we know this is the Passover. We've talked about the Feast of Dedication. We've talked about the, uh, the, ta- the Feast of Tabernacles. But this is that great Passover celebration. And I imagine most of you know what the Passover is in this room. But just for a reminder, for anybody that may not know, um, we go back to Exodus. God's people are slaves in Egypt. And God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, of course, you know what happens. Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to let the people go. And God sends all these plagues. He sends nine plagues. Do the plagues work? No. Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to let them go. And finally, God sends a tenth and final plague. You know what it is? Death of the firstborn. And what happens, you know the story. God tells the people of Israel, take a spotless lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood and put over the post of the door. And when the death angel passes over at night, if there's blood found on your doorpost, your firstborn will be spared. And so the firstborn came over, and the firstborn of Egypt were killed, and the firstborn of Israel, because of the spotless lamb's blood over the doorposts, those firstborn were spared. And so they began to celebrate later on what's called this Passover, that God delivered them in this mighty way. And this is a very big deal, a very big festival that they would celebrate. It's important and it was a very serious religious experience. Um, for, and and, and pe- many people would travel. One scholar said that there was likely two million travelers coming into Jerusalem. So think about that. We think about going to town during Christmas holidays is busy. Two million travelers coming into Jerusalem, ascending, headed to Jerusalem at this time. A large crowd, much people, verse 12 says. Something else I want you to think about. These families, when they came to the Passover, they had to bring something with them. Who knows what they had to bring with them? They had to bring a spotless lamb. They had to bring a lamb for sacrifice. And so two million people, each family bringing a lamb, what do you think is going to be all over the land? <laughs> a lamb here, a lamb here, a lamb here. And I just imagine, I imagine Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And I think about John 1, where John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who 
who takes away the sins of the world. And amongst all these spotless lambs, there was one true spotless lamb, Christ, coming into the city. And so as he comes into the city, as he enters in there, look at verse 13, it says they, they took branches of palm trees and they began to wave those and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, which is save us. Blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. I find this so interesting and um, I don't know, some may know this, but why palm branches? Is that just because that's all they had? Why these palm branches? Well, history tells us, and I, I find this fascinating, that in, in the second century, second 2 B.C., um, in 2 B.C., a group called the Seleucids came into Jerusalem and they ransacked the city and desecrated the temple. And so, as you can imagine, the, that was a, a terrible thing for Israel. But some of Israel, a group called the Maccabees, you may have heard that before, the Maccabees rose up and had a revolt against these Seleucids. There was a guy named Matthias who led a revolt. Then his son Judas uh, Maccabees was like this bad-to-the-bone guy. I mean, he was like a, they call it, some people think he's a, the Hebrew Robin Hood. And he would just rise up and, and, and attack the, the, the people that had taken over their country. And so finally, the, the Seleucid said, you know what, he's given us too much trouble, y'all can have the temple, y'all can worship in the temple. But that wasn't enough for Israel. They continued to fight, led by the Maccabees, and they took back their city, and the Seleucids got out. And when the Seleucids left, the people of Israel threw a huge party, a huge parade. Kind of like when you see sports teams win a championship, they'll have a big parade through the city. And they threw a huge parade, and as the leaders came through the city, the people of Israel got palm branches and began to wave the palm branches uh, through the city. And that palm branch became a symbol of nationalism for these people. So look at the text. It's the Passover. Many, many people, maybe a couple of million, are coming to, to Jerusalem. They know about this man, Jesus. They've heard of the miracles he's done. They've, some of them have heard him teach. And as he walks, as he comes into the city, they take palm branches and they begin to wave the palm branches like they did not too many years before. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna, save us. Now, I want you to make sure you understand this. These people are not thinking, most of them are not thinking spiritually, Right? You see the second note I gave you there? This crowd looked to Christ as a political and a national Savior, not so much as a spiritual Savior. They want someone to come in and help them get free from this Roman oppression. So they come in, they're, they're celebrating him. They think, here he comes, here comes our king. He's going to save us from the Romans. Most of that right there is not them worshiping. It's them looking to Christ as our future king, as their future king. Drew read Psalm 118 for us earlier. That's where we find this text, where it says, Blessed is the King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, imagine a Passover, a big crowds, a frenzy in the air for a king. They're looking for a king to come and lead them. They want a replay of the Maccabean revolt. And then look at verse 14. Let's check out their king. It says, Jesus rides into town on the biggest, strongest horse he could possibly find. Is that what it says? Jesus comes into town holding a huge sword, wearing armor. Is that what it says? No. 
They're looking for it, though, right? They're looking for this kind of king. He's going to be on a big horse with a sword, with armor, leading the way. And yet, verse 14 says, Jesus went and found another text. Tell us the disciples went and got him a borrowed, young, small donkey. So small that he probably had to put his, most scholars think he probably had to have his feet, pick his feet up off the ground. It was that small. Like me riding one of my girls' little bicycles. You have to kind of kick your feet up, which I do sometimes. Jesus found this, sat on it. Why did he do that? Well, he fulfilled a prophecy from Zechariah 9 that talks about this. You see it there. He also comes and showed them, I think maybe for the final time, he's showing them and trying to tell these people, these huge crowds, I'm not the king you're looking for right now. I'm a different kind of king. I'm coming as a humble servant who's going to lay down my life. Do the people get it? I don't know. Probably not, right? One thing that, that sticks out to me about this is, and I was discussing this with my wife earlier, how I've talked to married couples before who've had you know, some marital issues and um, who've said things like this. When I married him, I thought he was going to be different. But once we were married for a while, I realized he, he, had, he changed or he was different than I expected. You ever heard anybody say something like that before? Or I've heard a boss say, I hired this guy thinking he was going to be a good worker. Turned out he was not what I expected. All right? Politicians. We vo- I voted for this guy, but it turns out he was not the guy I thought. All those different things apply. Here's the point. The hurt runs deep when people feel betrayed. The hurt runs deep. And if you've ever been betrayed like that, where the, someone you thought you knew turned out to be different, that hurt can run deep. For these people, for many of these Jews, they're expecting Jesus, who has literally raised the dead, showing that he must be somebody special. He must be the next king if he can do that. They're, they're expecting him to come in with power and authority and just wipe the Romans away. And the hurt must run deep. Because I think Some of these very people who are saying, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think in less than a week, some of those same people are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The hurt runs deep when people feel betrayed. And many of these people, I think, felt betrayed. Verse 16. The apostle even tells us in verse 16. He gives us a little side note here. He said, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered the things that were written about him. That's a nice little, just a a note there. John's like, we didn't even realize it. But then we thought back and we realized it. Verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And we, we saw this the last couple of weeks. The people that saw and heard about Lazarus being raised, those people are testifying. They're witnesses. They're what we should be, right? We've seen what Christ has done in our lives, and they're testifying and bearing witness to what he had done. Verse 18, and so the crowd comes to meet him. And again, a lot of this is because of what he did with Lazarus. They hear about this miracle. As they come to him, verse 19 says, I think this verse is funny. funny. See if you can find the humor in it. Verse 19, the Pharisees said among themselves, perceive you how you prevail nothing. In other words, these Pharisees are standing around talking, and they look at each other and go, nothing's happening. 
and, and, and what I have here is you're gaining nothing. It's like one Pharisee to another, you're gaining nothing. Another Pharisee's like, well, you're gaining nothing. Nothing's happening that we want to happen, and the whole world is going after him. And obviously that's not true, not the whole world, but their point is, it seems like it. The whole world seems to be going after him. We want him to be arrested. We want him to be shut down. And yet, people continue to come to this man. They keep coming to this Christ. It makes me happy when I see the enemies of Christ frustrated. <laughs> right? That, that applies to today too, right? If I see people who are anti-Christ, against Christ, and they're frustrated, that makes me happy. To know that Christ's word's going out, his glory's going out, and that nothing people do, right, no matter what religion or cult or group tries to attack Christ or tries to hinder his name or tries to slander the church, no matter what happens, uh, Christ will build his church and it will go forward. Um, it can't be, he can't be stopped. Other gospels tell us here, although this John doesn't, but other gospels tell us here from, I believe between 19 and 20, there's a break there. And in that break, Jesus healed people. He taught people and for the second time, he ran the money changers out of the temple area. Now, John doesn't tell us that, but the other gospel writers do. And so there's a lot going on here. And then in verse 20, we see something else. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some, some Greeks. And these people came to Philip and asked him, sir, we want to see Jesus. Many people suppose that these Greeks, these Gentiles, were, were God-fearers, God-worshippers who were interested in, in coming to see Jesus. Others think they were just there interested to to see what was going on with this man that people were, were celebrating and talking to. But notice something interesting here, and I love this application. They came to Philip. What did Philip do? Did Philip take him right to Jesus? Philip went and got Andrew, and Andrew helped him take him to Jesus. Did you know every time you see Andrew in the Gospels, he's taking people to Jesus? Say it again. Every time you see the, the disciple Andrew, or many times you see him anyway, he's taking people to Jesus, beginning with his very own brother, Simon Peter. That's one reason I named my second son Andrew, because I love that picture of Andrew the disciple, taking people to Christ. So then we see Jesus speaking, and here's where our, our four points will come in this morning. In verse 23, Jesus answers and says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. If you've been with us since January, a few different occasions we've said, the text has said, it was not his hour. They wanted to arrest Jesus. They had him surrounded, it seems like, and he just kind of worked his way out of there. And the Bible would say, his time has not yet come. It's not yet his hour, meaning it's not yet his hour to, to die. And finally, in chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus with his own mouth says, the hour is here. The hour has come. That I should be glorified. And by glorified, he means lifted up on the cross. Isn't it interesting that you know, we, know, we understand that in many ways him going to the cross is a bad thing. It's terrible that the, the Savior was killed, the sinless, perfect Son of God killed. And Jesus speaks of it in a positive light, that he will be glorified. Because he knew the ultimate purpose of it. Verse 24. In verse 24 it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here comes your first point of four today. The death of Christ effectually saves sinners. Death is the way to life. Death 
is the way to spiritual life. And the illustration in verse 24 is that of a grain, that of a seed. And we understand that if you take a seed and bury it in the ground, put it under dirt, and you bury a seed, if you're just looking at it, you're like, well, it's gone. It's gone. It's put away in the ground. What's going to happen? But what we know is that seed can grow and sprout and grow up out of the ground. And so the picture of Jesus, what he says here is, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains long. But if it grows out, then it will bear much fruit. And what he's saying here is, when I lay down my life, then I will produce fruit. Now, I want to give you a few texts, a few verses. John 10, 15. Jesus said, I lay down my life for who? The sheep. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for who? Many. Another verse I don't have up there for you, but it's Titus 2, 14. It says, He gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I want to read to you Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus, or he, shall see and be satisfied. When I say the death of Christ effectually saves sinners, what I mean is this. Jesus did not die simply to make your salvation possible. He died to actually save you. Do you know the difference? Do you see the difference? Jesus did not, <coughs> excuse me, did not give himself on the cross, rise again, ascend to heaven, intercede for us there, and one day we'll return. He did not do all that and then go up there to ascend and sit like, Oh, I hope they'll receive me as their Savior. We paint Jesus as such a weak God sometimes. And I like the way R.C. Sproul said it. He said, away with this kind of doctrine. <laughs> away with it. And I used to believe this kind of doctrine. But man, Jesus, it's like Jesus did his work. He did all that work. He laid down his life, rose again, and he sits on the 50-yard line like a spectator waiting like, I hope they'll, I hope they'll receive me. I hope they'll put me in, <laughs> you know. We, we think of Jesus like he's some poor guy knocking at a door, you know, better open the door. Is that what the Bible says about Christ and how he laid down his life? He said in that verse, in our text, look at it, I'm not just making this up, if it dies, if I go into the ground, if I give my life, I will produce fruit. Not I might save, but I will save. People will be saved. We don't serve a weak, helpless Savior. When Jesus died, he died for sinners. He died for his elect. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it. Your salvation was paid for. I'm going to quote a, a guy named Sha Lin, who I quoted a few weeks ago, but he said, if you believe Jesus only died to make your salvation possible, then you're saying the cross by itself doesn't save. You're saying that we must do something to give the cross its power. And that means at the end of the day, the glory is ours. We say away with that doctrine. We say salvation is monergistic, which means God does it all. 
And we receive him by faith through grace in Christ. But he does all that too. Your faith was given to you by God. Your repentance, granted by God. He gets the glory for our salvation. The death of Christ actually saves sinners. Look at number two, and I found this in verse 25, and it's this. Make Christ your top priority. Verse 25 says, whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Now, we understand, and I just said, there's nothing we can do to be saved. We just receive Christ. He does all the work. He saves us by spirit, through the word. But once we know Christ, there's a change in our lives, right? And a part of that change is that Christ becomes priority to us. It's, it's a fundamental thing throughout Scripture to either choose God or not, right? You know, if, as for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord. You choose, you choose who you'll serve. How about what Christ said? He said, you can't serve God and mammon. You know, there, there's all these different things in Scripture where you've got to choose one or the other. You can't, you know, again, we've said this a while back, you can't ride the fence with Christ, right? Like, I'll take a little bit of Christ. No, you don't get a little bit of Christ. You get all or none. It's Christ. It's, it's, he's the Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so there's this clinging that people do. And look, we're all guilty of this at times through our lives, but there's a clinging we do of worldly things that hinders us from making Christ the top thing. And again, you know, I stand before you guilty of this at times where I'll let other things get in, get in the way of Christ as my top priority. Again, this is not about what you do to be saved. This is about what you do once you're saved. And I love the text because 24 said that Christ said he goes to the ground, he'll rise up and produce fruit. The same thing happens for, with us. We come, we, we come Christians we're dead to sin, dead to self, alive in Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Someone said, the man whose priorities are right has such an attitude of love for the things of God that it makes all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. Look at 25 again. Does Christ want people to literally actually hate their own lives? Remember when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must hate your mother and father, sister and brother. Did he really want people to actually hate their family? No. But here's what he meant, I think. I think he meant your love for me, your love for Christ should be so great that your love for others kind of seems like hate. And so your love for Christ and his priority in our lives should seem so great that it seems like we, we, we again, we have denied ourselves, as the scripture said. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, he said. Let me give you another text here. I don't think I have it for you, but in Luke 9, Jesus is walking along the road. Someone runs up to him and says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be homeless. I'm paraphrasing. And what Jesus says to that man is, you better count the cost. If you're going to follow me, it's, you can't just say, I'm a Christian and follow me, or I go to church and follow me. No, it costs to follow Jesus. In that same text, someone says, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go do this. And Jesus said, no, you need to follow me. Someone else said, Lord, I need to go say farewell, farewell to my people back home, then I'm going to follow you. And Jesus said famously, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Time and time again, what about the rich young ruler? Lord, I keep all your commands. I'm good. I'm good to go. 
And Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And what does the scripture say? He went away sad, didn't he? He was wealthy. He was not going to do that. So over and over again, we understand that salvation is a free gift of God to us, but we also understand that to follow Christ costs us. Ryle said this about this text. Truths such as these should sink deeply into our hearts and stir up self-examination. It is as true of Christians as it is of Christ that there can be no life without death. There can be no sweet without bitter. There can be no crown without a cross. Without Christ's death, there would have been no life for the world. Unless we are willing to die to sin and crucify all that is most dear to flesh and blood, we cannot expect any benefit from Christ's death. Let us remember these things and take up our cross daily. Let us, for the joy set before us, endure the cross and despise the shame, and in the end we shall sit down with our Master at God's right hand. The way of self-crucifixion and sanctification might seem foolish and wasteful to the world, just as burying good, seem, good seed seems wasteful to the child. But there never lived the man who did not find that by sowing in the Spirit he reaped life everlasting. To count the cost, to hate your life that you might gain it, will always be worth it. Next, verse 26. Similarly to our last point, I'm going to say this. We should serve and we must serve and follow Christ. Jesus says, if any man serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, the word serve here is the, the word diakonos, which is the word we, get, we have the word deacon from. It means to be an active servant of God, serving people, helping people, being a servant. To be a Christian is to be a servant. To be a Christian is to be a follower. And we understand that there are things we can do here at church to serve one another through prayer, through Bible discussions, through just helping around the, the, the facilities and all these things. But we also understand that we can serve Christ every day in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever you may go, we're to be servants of Christ. Spurgeon said, all of you who would have Christ as your Savior, you must be willing to serve him. We're not saved by service, but we are saved to service. Let's go back to the text here. Let's think about where we are. What if Jesus said, and he does say it, follow me. And where I am, there you can be. Imagine a few days from now when he's hanging on that cross. Imagine if some of the disciples thought about this verse. I thought about what he had said. I don't know if I want to follow him now, right? I was following him all this time. We know they didn't, right? They ended up abandoning him before the cross, right? Some of them. Peter denied him. Others abandoned. It's amazing that Jesus says, follow me, and then he heads to a bloody death. But I think the picture is clear that to follow Christ is to die to this world. To die to, die to things of this world. As a soldier follows his general, as a servant follows his master, as a scholar, scholar follows his teacher, and as a sheep follows its shepherd, the professing Christian ought to follow Christ. How important is it? If you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Christ, I'm a Christian, but I don't serve Christ, I would say, I don't believe you, right? 
Christians serve, Christians follow. Faith, love, and obedience are the leading marks of true followers of Christ. Number four. We'll stay in verse 26 because he gives us just a brief glance of a reward here. A reward of following, which I think the reward of following Christ is knowing Christ. Namely, that's the main thing, but he mentions here an eternal home. That's what he means, I think, specifically when he says, there my servant shall be. I think he is speaking about his glory when he goes to heaven. And if any man serve me, him will my father honor. I don't know exactly what that means, but it has to be a good thing. If God the Father looks on us, his children, and honors us in any way. And I think this is speaking to eternity and the things we have to look forward to there. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. We who know Christ, who've been born again, who were, who were unworthy, did not, did not deserve it, but yet he laid down his life for us in our place. And we who follow him have a reward greater than we can ever know. Greater than any honor we can receive in this life, greater than any home we can have in this life, we have a heavenly home and a heavenly honor that surpasses all of this stuff we have here. So turn your eyes to Jesus, the crucified king, the risen king, the coming king, the good and gracious king. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. If you take just a moment to pray, and after this prayer, we're going to sing a song together and, and just as we meditate on the words we just heard.